Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Amy. So a little boy was uh, once in his backyard, and uh, he did what, he was by himself, but he had a baseball and a bat, and so he did what almost every little boy does, he was by himself with a baseball and a bat. He took the ball, and he threw it up, and he took the bat, and he swung, and he missed it, and he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. He did it again, strike one, by the way, and so he threw it up again, he said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world, and he swung, and he missed it, strike two, by the way. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to do it again. He threw the ball up. He swung and he missed it. And he said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Well, that's what I would call failing forward. Failure can be a hard word for us to get comfortable with, isn't it? Some of us hold back because we're afraid to fail and we're risk averse. I remember when, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I remember when a friend of ours uh, took us skiing in Minnesota and uh, out on his boat, and I had never water skied before, and I saw the people trying to water ski before me, and they had clearly not water skied well before, and they kept, you know, stumbling and face planting and all this, and I just basically said, no, I'm not going to do it. The tube is for me. Uh, and the reason is, I just didn't want to fail. I didn't want to look foolish and face plant there uh, in the lake. Some people get locked into relational conflict and can't get out of it. Why? Because one or both parties just don't want to admit that they're wrong or have failed at something in the relationship. Organizations will often redefine standards so that everyone succeeds and so that no one fails understand that we need to be careful with this, but failure avoidance is not always healthy for us. Some failures in life are small. Miss an appointment, toss a baseball bat and hit a music stand, mess up the checking account, miss a fitness goal, mess up a work project, maybe miss one Valentine's Day in 20 years of marriage. By the way, that's two weeks away. Um, But other failures forever alter the trajectory of our lives. Teenage rebellion can at times lead to really bad decisions that alter educational plans and other life goals. Failed relationships in the home can have a generational impact. A failure in corporate ethics and morals can impact the future of thousands of employees and their families and shareholders. The Houston-based energy company Enron was one of the biggest scandals ever in American business history. And it was all due to the moral failure of greed and just massive, massive deception by their leadership. Their downfall resulted in shareholders losing over $74 billion, thousands of employees not only losing their jobs, but they also lost billions in pension benefits. The question in life, really, is not are we going to fail? We all know that we have experienced failure. The question is, how will we respond to failure? Failure can, lead to, failure can lead to intense bouts of shame, regret, and a sense of low self-worth and esteem. Learning how to appropriately respond to failure can be one of the most valuable tools that we can ever add to our toolbox. In 1928, some of the world's wealthiest and most successful people gathered for a meeting in Chicago. They included the president of the largest utility company, the most successful wheat commodity broker, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, members of the president's cabinet, and other tycoons of business. 
That was 1928. However, the president of the largest company, Charles M. Swab, not related, by the way, to the financial services founder, and the wheat trader, Arthur Cutton, both died financially broke. The president of the stock exchange went to prison. Several of the men, sadly, who were around that table in that meeting that day committed suicide. What happened in 1929? The stock market crash and the beginning of the Great Depression. These men did not know how to respond to failure and you would say adversity. But we don't have to be that way. We don't have to let failure lead us to a cycle of regret and shame. It doesn't have to lead us to feelings of low self-worth. And by the way, some people struggle with low self-worth because they grew up with someone telling them they were a failure. If you struggle with how to handle failure, I have really good news for you this morning. Actually, make that God has good news for you this morning. God wants to come to each one of us right in the messiness and in the middle of our failures. He wants to take our broken pieces. Some are there by hurts. Others are there by failures. He wants to take our stuff and redeem it. He wants to trade our stuff, our messiness, our brokenness, and our failures in for good, for the good of others, and for God's glory. A great verse to memorize uh, this morning is Proverbs 24:16. For the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Proverbs 24:16. For the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. So if you like taking notes, let me invite you to take, simply take out a piece of paper. And, and I want to do something a little bit out of the norm this morning. Rather than looking at one passage of Scripture, I want us to consider several. And I also want to commend a terrific book on this subject to you by a guy named John Maxwell. He wrote a book called Failing Forward. Uh, that book has influenced the way I've approached this topic today. Now, before we get started, let me just clarify. Some failure we bring on ourselves. Some adversity in our life is caused by the failures of others, and that has caused us great pain. If you've experienced pain in your life because of the failure of others, the key for you is how you respond to that adversity, right? What we learn today on how to deal with those moments when we fail, you can also apply to adversity when you have experienced the failure of others on your life. Let me uh, lead us in prayer uh, before we jump in. I, I know this can be a very tender topic. Let's pray together. God, now we do. We, we take these moments to You. We open up to hear stories from Your Word, truths from Your Word, and we ask that You allow them to sink deeply into our hearts and our minds so that we may consider how You want to come to us and redeem those difficult, challenging, and hard places in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to offer just a brief roadmap this morning on how God wants you to deal with failure. And the first is this. Don't let failure define you. You define your failure. Don't let failure define you. You define your failure. God, your creator, didn't design you, create you, give you the kiss of life, and send his son to die for you and redeem you only for your life, only for you to define your life by failure. But as fallible, hard-headed, 
sinful human beings in our own limitations, we have a tendency to want to quantify things and to reduce ourselves to silly definitions of failure and success. Or we have this tendency to want to hang on to those moments of failure in deep regret and guilt. Or we spend our lives comparing ourselves to others and we let others define what success looks like rather than God. A friend of mine always used to sum this up really simply by saying, comparison kills. Indeed it does. Comparison kills. When you live your life trying to compare your life to others, it absolutely can take all the spirit out of your journey. We'll always find someone who just seems to have it more together than we do. Part of the Ten Commandments is, for example, the Tenth Commandment, excuse me, is not to covet. And that's the idea of comparing what others have in light of what we feel that we do not have, is to question God's provision for our lives. And unless we have an understanding of God's grace, we can start to pile up failure after failure, comparison after comparison, and we begin to feel like, you guessed it, a failure. That's what it's like when we let failure define us. So there are two broad ways we can define failure. One is we can define it as a predictor. We can let it predict and script our lives if we're not careful. There's a phrase in HR management that says past performance is an indicator of future behavior. Past performance is an indicator of future behavior. I hate that phrase. It is a graceless phrase. I understand how employers use it. Don't get me wrong. But it is the phrase that just sucks all the oxygen out of a person's hope. It is deflating. And it is defeating. There are home versions of this. It's not just for uh, the HR boardroom. You'll never change. You'll always be this way. You will never change. Your parents were this way and you will always be this way and your kids will be also. You will never change. You'll never measure up your brother or sister and the hard reality that we've been exploring in this series is that for some of us we have learned unhealthy ways to deal with our emotions counselors call this a script we tend to follow a script that we learned at some point in life and it is the one we follow until we allow God to write a new one for us so failure can be a predictor or It can be a crucible. It can be a crucible. A crucible is defined as a place or situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. You can learn to look upon your failure as an opportunity to learn and to grow and submit to the beautiful, refining force of God's grace. Let me just invite you to to meditate upon this picture that we're going to put uh, on the screen for you. As I read Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, just allow these words to wash over this image. It reads, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you 
in my hand. Go to verse 4 and highlight or circle verse 4. We are all marred in some ways. We are all imperfect in some ways. Some of us have cracks. Others of us have lumps. Some of us have cracks and lumps. Some of those lumps and cracks we've been carrying around for a long time. Others are just now forming. Now circle highlight verse 6. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand. The Lord spoke this to Israel as He fashioned Israel to be the nation that He wanted Israel to be. And Israel had lumps and cracks and scars all over the place. And this is a word a word from God to you today. You have lumps, cracks, scars, no doubt. But in the potter's hand, in the potter's hand, He will fashion you and make you to be someone who is absolutely stunning and beautiful. If you don't want your failure to define you, you will claim that promise from God. God will, in His mercy and love, carefully close the cracks and smooth out the lumps in your life. God's grace can serve as the concentrated force in your life that turns failure into a crucible instead of a predictor. And it can give you that sense of confident humility. I love those two words put together. We don't put those two words together much, do we? Confident humility. Humility in you know and are aware of past failure. Confident in that you know it doesn't define you and that God will turn it into something extraordinary. So a gentle question this morning. Is your failure going to be a predictor or a crucible? Are you going to allow God's grace to work in your life to be the concentrated force in your life, the defining force in your life that turns it into a crucible that makes you better, stronger, more sensitive, more tuned to the work of God, more loving, more merciful, more kind? Second little turn in our roadmap here is we have an opportunity to choose our response. I've mentioned this before, but one of the aspects of the Bible that is just so extraordinary is that we do not sugarcoat our saints. We see their failures and we see their sins. We could have just a month's worth of sermons on that topic alone, but let me just suggest three episodes that outline a response to failure for us. And rather than reading each scripture, I'm going to just give you the reference and let you use that maybe as a time of, of reflection and devotion this week. But the first response that we could have to failure is to ignore or deny it. That's 2 Samuel 11. In 2 Samuel 11, we read about King David and his affair with Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and just ignored his failure. He ignored his failure and he actually compounded it by having Uriah set up to be killed in the field of battle. So we have this massive more of failure as he committed adultery with Bathsheba. We have this massive more of failure and he at first ignored it and denied it and then compounded it. Later he confessed it after being confronted. The lesson here is that when we ignore or deny our failure, it often sets into motion a destructive chain reaction. The second response is to scapegoat. In the Bible, a scapegoat is one of two kid goats. One goat would be sacrificed on the day of atonement. The other goat, the scapegoat, 
would be released into the wilderness, taking with it all the sins. The priest would pronounce all the sins of the people and impurities of the people on the scapegoat. And that scapegoat would be released out into the wilderness to take the sins of the people with them. Over time, the word simply meant someone designated or chosen to take the fall for others. For example, if a a company does something wrong, a CEO or other leader may be fired even though he or she was not directly responsible. We are here in Washington, D.C. The idea of a scapegoat happens all the time around here. In ordinary life, this would take the form of blaming someone else for your wrongdoing. Well, we all know the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, and she eats it. Then Adam eats it. And then we, God comes asking questions. Adam blamed Eve, and then Eve blamed the serpent. Everybody was throwing shade all around. What happens when we scapegoat or blame? We place ourselves either consciously or subconsciously into the role of a victim. No doubt, Some of you have suffered at the hands of others or from circumstances that can't be blamed on anyone. But without regard to how something happened, only you can choose to let your circumstances make you a victim and scapegoat others. With God's help, you can move from being a victim or thinking like a victim to being victorious. So we have deny and ignore. We have scapegoating or we have door number C, which I hope we all choose, and that's to own it. To own it. To take responsibility. This is really the only choice we have of failing forward if we're going to move forward when we fail. It is to take full and complete responsibility for your failure. If you've been hurt by someone else, it is to take full responsibility for choosing a path forward toward healing which includes, if appropriate, being willing to forgive and pursue reconciliation. Our biblical model here is Peter. You know Peter. Impetuous, hot-headed, passionate, and yet at times a coward. When Jesus was arrested and being beaten, Peter was out in the courtyard warning himself, warming himself by the fire. When asked about his relationship to Jesus, Peter denied him three times. Mark tells us that soon, as soon as Peter denied Jesus, get this, as soon as Peter denied Jesus, as soon as Peter knew all that was true in his life, once he denied all that was true in his life, Mark says he not only went outside and wept, but before it says he wept, Mark said he broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. He felt the full weight of his responsibility that started his path toward forgiveness and grace and healing both Luke and John tell us that Peter ran to the tomb to see that it was empty after the resurrection of Jesus John ends his gospel by Jesus reinstating Peter and then Peter went on to become the leader of the establishment leading in the establishment of the early church but his path toward grace started that night He faced his failure, and he owned it. It is really the only way to fail forward and to allow God to shape you and to make you whole in the midst of it. Well, the last little turn on the roadmap. And so we we have this idea of, of choosing our response, and then we embrace grace. 
We embrace grace. One of the best descriptions I've ever heard of grace is that wherever you find an intersection in the world of God and human need, so wherever you find in the world God and need by humankind, there you will find grace. That's how God comes to us. That's how God approaches us. Let that sink in. St. Paul described a weakness he had as his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but we do know that God spoke to him and told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. By the way, the, uh, the, the word perfect there in the Greek is, is also translated as complete. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made complete, full, overflowing in your weakness. This is the invitation by God to take your failure, pain, brokenness to the throne of God because there you will find His mercy, His grace, and His power. I think we often know this intellectually, but often it's not until someone shows us grace in a time of failure that we can really appreciate it and embrace it in our lives. You know, we often talk about success mentors. But let me challenge you to find a failure mentor. Someone who has failed forward in life and learned from their failures. Let me also say to you, if you are in leadership over others, be willing to be vulnerable and to share in an appropriate way your failures and what you've learned. I may have shared this story with you before, but it really stands out to me when I think about this topic. After I graduated from high school, I was slated to be the first person in my family to go to college. And so I graduated and headed off to school. And somehow during orientation, I'm not blaming anybody else, but during orientation, I missed the part where they said I had to go to class. And so I headed off to college, and I basically didn't make it until Christmas of that same year. I was home just months later. It was my fault. I goofed off. I was just not ready. And I remember when going back home and moving into my parents' house, I absolutely felt humiliated. And a a few days after um, that experience, after getting home, I went to see one of my brothers play, uh, I believe it was uh, winter or fall league late uh, softball. Um, And I remember going and playing uh, or watching them and sitting on the back of of the bleachers there, and people could walk behind. And I remember this, this person walking behind, but I didn't see him come up. All I felt was his big, heavy hands on my shoulders. And he said to me, he said, I know how you feel. I had the same experience. I know how you feel. I had the same experience. And the man was a neighbor who was also uh, a very successful small business owner uh, for the company that my mom worked for. I know how you feel. I had the same experience. Now, He wasn't technically a mentor, but his words stayed with me. And those words stayed with me. And after uh, a couple of months, I ended up going into the Army. And then after my time uh, in the Army, uh, I went to James Madison University, go Dukes. And then after James Madison, I got my graduate degree uh, at the Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond. And then not too long ago, I received my doctorate from Portland Seminary. Every 
single step of my educational journey, I felt those hands on my shoulder and I remembered those words. Do you have a failure mentor? Somebody who has fallen and gotten up by the grace of God. We all need them in our lives. This past week, Shireen Joseph and her family buried her father, Mr. Muhammad Z. Khan. And Shireen shared with me that uh, when Mr. Khan lived in Guyana, and she gave me permission to share this story with you, but that when Mr. Khan lived in Guyana, he was a taxi driver. And uh, in Guyana, uh, it's a little bit different than uh, here in that, you know, we usually get sort of one or two people in a taxi at a time. Well, there, they would get eight, nine, ten people, David said, in a taxi at a time. And so he was a taxi driver, driving people all around the town. And as you can imagine, uh, the seats in his taxi just became absolutely worn out and cracked and torn. All, you can just imagine that. Did he go out and buy a new cab? No. Did he go out and buy new seats? No. He learned how to upholster. And with uh, whatever the tools you, you take and thread and all that and new cloth, he basically pieced together those seats. He pieced together through the cracks and the tears and made new seats that would work for his taxi cab. He took the broken places and made them like new. You know, my friends, that's what God does for each one of us. As we bring our failures, as we bring our pain as we bring our struggles over the various emotions we've talked about in this series, as we bring those to Him, He works and He weaves His healing grace into our lives. He redeems them. He uses them for our good. He uses them for the good of others. And He uses them for His glory. I invite you to redefine your failure this morning. Don't ignore it. Don't push it off on others. Own it. And take it straight to the heart of God. Take it straight to the cross of Christ. And allow Him to redeem it in your life. And fail forward in His grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to You this morning fully aware of our shortcomings. Fully aware of the ways that we have failed You and fail others. So Lord, we now, we fall forward into Your grace. Give us all that we need to do so. And we know and we claim the promise that when we fall into Your grace, when we approach You, it is in Your presence that we find mercy, that we find compassion, that we find love, that we find forgiveness, that we find healing that we find your tender, loving care. So God, we are the clay and you are the potter. Smooth us out. Smooth our cracks and crevices and lumps and bumps so that we may be used for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.